All right, so here, here's what, uh, here's the deal. This is not a cooking show, in case you're curious. Um, this is not uh, me trying to impress you either. I just know that in the middle of fall, there's a lot of things that I only really eat during fall. How many of you are like apple cider donuts is why I live in Michigan in the fall, okay? Yeah, me too, okay? If I could put up both hands, I would, all right? Apple cider. How many of you are warm cider people? Throw your hands up. Now, how many of you are like me? You're a cold cider guy, okay? We're all hanging out after the rest so you can find a new church. I'm just, <laughs> just kidding. Just, that's weird. Don't, if you're online, I'm sorry. <laughs> if you're watching, this is the first time. Uh, there's a lot of exciting things about fall. There's some certain things that we only really eat in fall or only really drink in fall, which would be anything in the apple cider family, basically, or pumpkin family, if you're one of those people. For me, I think about there's a lot of different things that I only eat in fall, but there's one staple I've kind of observed about Lindsay and I that we eat every single week. Now, it's not apple cider, it's not pumpkin. It is these beautiful specimens, this vegetable from on high called the potato, okay? The starch, okay? This is what we need to survive uh, in the Gorbite household. Now, again, if you'll bear with me, I'm going to open this bag, and I want to show you something about the potato, because before we actually show you the kind of potato, I just need you to know a couple things about potatoes that I think are really, really important, okay? So this is why you came to church, right? You came to figure out how much I'm in love with potatoes. So here we go. Number one, this is the best potato you're about to see. Number two, um, I don't fool with russet or redskin. I'm a Yukon Gold only guy, okay? That is essential to having an incredible roasted potato experience. I play with sweet potatoes sometimes, but I do not eat them every week. These are like my every week staple. We always, if you go to our house anytime, and most of you have probably uh, already known this about me, I love French fries, and we eat some version of French fries every single week. And so what I want to do is I'm going to crack this open, and while I'm doing that, I want you to turn to someone near you, and you say your favorite version of the potato. Now, it could be French fry, it could be baked, it could be roasted, which is my personal favorite. Could be wedges, could be some other weird concoction that your family thinks is normal, okay? So just turn to somebody next to you that may be brand new. You may have never met them and just say, here's my preferred version of potato. All right, now that you're totally distracted and thinking about lunch only, uh, here's kind of for me, when I think about Lindsay and I cooking roasted potatoes, essentially, uh, there's really just one key ingredient to me. There's one essential ingredient that to really make a great roasted set of potatoes, which I'm just, I've just got one handful here. If you really wanna make a great roasted potato, in Lindsay's world, and she grew up in an Italian household in New Jersey, in her world, the, the quintessential ingredient for a great roasted potato is this right here, garlic powder. Now, some of you agree with her and you think, of course, like, why would you forget anything? I mean, this is all you really need. There's one. And so we got married. I started to believe that she was right until I discovered this beautiful salt, nature's purest salt deposited on the seabed 250 million years ago. It's free of today's pollutants. 
This salt is hand-mined high in the pristine Himalayan mountains and contains no additives or preservatives. This, my friends, is the Himalayan pink salt, okay? <laughs> this is actually the essential ingredient in incredible roasted potatoes. I don't fool with white salt anymore. I don't fool with black pepper ground up. I don't fool with that. This is all I need for an essential, beautiful potato, okay? And so, again, if I was, had an oven in front of me and this was Rachel Ray, I'd be cooking this all in front of you. You're going to have a picture that I'm doing all that. When I think about what is essential when it comes to potatoes, this is literally what comes to mind. We have a huge, I got this for Christmas, okay? Does that illustrate that more clearly for you, the sick desire I have to salt everything I have with these? And Lindsay, over and over again, she'll cook with salt, and now we cook with this salt, and, and every time I get my bowl, whatever it is, maybe it's just roasted potatoes, I grab more salt out of things, sprinkle on it, my heart is slowly dying. Like, those are kind of the... That's just how I grew up, with salting everything. And so now that I've found this beautiful specimen straight out of the Himalayas, this is getting too long. Okay, so anyway, I really like this is my whole point. Uh, but you probably have things in your pantry that you'd consider really essential. And that word is kind of been a buzzword for us culturally in the last six months. What's essential, what's not? Uh, for me, I think about how many of us prioritize things in our life that really at the end of eternity we'd say are not essential. Sometimes for us that's sports, sometimes for us that's in the realm of politics, sometimes that's for us in our social media presence or our body image. We stare in the mirror and make decisions financially, relationally about what we're going to do that day based on how we look. And some of us do the same thing when it comes to our relationships. We make decisions about who we decide to be friends with based on who we think they're going to vote for. We make decisions about who is worthy of God's love or not. If they look like us, they think like us, they behave like us, and oftentimes, if you really boil down some of those deep disagreements we have in our culture, they really have to do with non-essentials, things that don't matter as much as following Jesus and doing things that are really important are. Now, I think if you look at your life, and I've definitely looked at mine the last couple of months and thought, what is my life like when I actually pursue things that are non-essential? Oftentimes, my life doesn't get increasingly better when I'm chasing things that are non-essential. It gets increasingly worse. I, I become more anxious. I become more stressed. I become more worried about the future. I become more fearful of what the next six months will feel like in relation to the last six months. I think if, if you have to boil down, even as we're looking at uh, the passage we're going to jump into, one of the questions I have been asking, and, and many of you, as I've sat with you, you've begun to ask a question very similar to this in the last couple months, is what is God really looking for? What is he really after? What, what to God is essential in growing as a disciple of Jesus? Now, maybe you're at a totally different end of the spectrum. Maybe today you're coming, you're exploring faith, you're exploring Christianity. You wouldn't say you have a, a real vibrant relationship with Jesus. I look around the room, there's others of you for 40 years. That's been true. You've had a vibrant, real life-giving relationship with Jesus, and you've, you've cracked the code on that. But as I look at the last couple of months, I think, what is God really after? What is he really looking for? What does he really require of me, if I could put it that way? What's interesting, um, when you look at the story of Scripture, God had set aside a group of people early in, in the very first couple chapters of Genesis called the Israelites. They were supposed to be God's chosen people. They were supposed to follow him. They were supposed to stay in step with him. Actually, more than that, they were supposed to be a model to the world of what real, genuine relationship with the Lord looked like. They were supposed to be a blessing. And, and along the way, Israel got distracted by non-essentials. 
But at, at kind of the forefront of their minds was this promise that God had given them that they were going to inherit what they'd call the promised land. This place that was flourishing, this place that was going to be great for them to set up a Christian community, this place that was going to be incredible for them to, to be a blessing to other nations. This was part of the covenant God had made. So I'm going to bring you to this incredibly rich, fertile land in which you can flourish as a community. But along the way, they bumped into some obstacles. Along the way, they had some spouts of, or bouts of disobedience, of temptation, of, of slavery, of oppression. And eventually, they get freed from all that. In the book of Joshua, we see that they're just on the cusp. They just enter this promised land, this region that God had given them. But they encounter some obstacles. They encounter some enemies in the land. They encounter some real physical opposition saying, no, 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 we're not going to let you inherit this land. We've already been here. We, we have our claim on this land. Uh, enter a, a nation, a tribe called Jericho. Now, Jericho, if you grew up in church or you grew up in a Christian school like the one we meet in right now, you remember the song, Joshua fought the battle of, and you're all like now humming the rest, right? So uh, I, I think about that. I grew up hearing that story. Honestly, didn't really know what it was about. Just knew that walls fell and people walked around and shouted. Like that, that to me was kind of what Jericho was. I didn't really understand anything more about the story. Jericho, though, was the strongest fortress in opposition to God in the promised land. It, it was the most advanced in terms of military tech. I mean, they had figured it out. They had kept people out successfully for centuries out of this city. But God had said, you're supposed to inherit the promised land. And within that is some, are some of these fortresses. I need you to take them down. Like if you want to really inherit the promise, you're going to learn how to take them out. Now, Israel is, as we studied last week, not always the most equipped. I mean, in Gideon's story that we jumped into last weekend, they didn't have it all together. They didn't have the camel cavalry, right? They, they hadn't figured that part out yet. They, they were quite weak when it came to actually some military strategies that the other nations had developed. And Jericho's specialty was their walls. 13 feet high, uh, 28 feet deep, multiple layers to the walls. Like if you actually wanted to get through, you had to go through multiple layers of military forces and these physical barriers. And so a lot of people didn't oppose them. A lot of people just stayed away from Jericho because they couldn't overcome these walls. They were incredibly fortified. So I want to skip ahead as we look at that question, what is God looking for, into Joshua 6, verse 1. Now, if you have a Bible or you've got a device, some of it will be on the screen, but you're going to want to kind of get the context of the story as we're going through it uh, to see everything we're going to look at. In Joshua 6, 1, uh, here's where we enter the story with the Israelites. Now, the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. They knew they were coming, so no one went out of Jericho and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, he's kind of the leader of Israel at this point in time. He says, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Let me pause there. Did you catch what the Lord says to Joshua at the very, very beginning? He says, see, I have delivered. Notice these are all past tense. I'm not great at grammar or English, but I can get that. Okay, like that's supposed to have already happened. I've delivered Josh, Jericho into your hands, along with its king, along with the leader and their military, all of their fighting men. I've delivered them over. And Joshua's probably standing overlooking the city and saying, uh, that doesn't make sense. There's still walls. There's still a city. They, there's still smoke coming out of the chimneys. Like, they, they haven't left yet. How have you delivered us? This makes 
No sense. So the Lord continues. He instructs him. He says, march around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. And then I want you to have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. Priests meaning worship leaders. I want you to get your worship leaders, get their old trumpets out of the marching band closet, and I want you to go march around this city with these horns, with these uh, ram's horns. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests, these worship leaders, blowing these trumpets. When you hear them sound a, a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up. Everyone straight in. Again, Joshua's looking at huge walls, military defense systems that he has never overcome and saying, what are you talking about? Don't we need like a good strategy? Don't we need more people? Don't we need like at least some some pickaxes or something to try to chisel away at this wall? You're telling me that we just got to get some trumpets and march around. That's your strategy. Reminds me of Gideon, right? You look back at his strategy. God, I've got 32,000 guys I mustered up. That's pretty good. God says, I want you to take it down to 300. That's going to be even better. And God ends up delivering the Midianites into Israel's hand. The same type of thing is happening here in Joshua's story. So look what he does, verse 6. Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance. March around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. So when Joshua had spoken to the people, they did it. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests, who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the Ark. All this time, the trumpets were sounding. You get the picture of this, right? This marching band is going ballistic. Like, there's just so much noise, shouting, trumpets going off. And Joshua had commanded the army, verse 10, don't give a war cry, war cry, though. Don't raise your voices. Don't say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So we had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once, and the army returned to camp, and they spent the night there. Trumpets, banners, worship leaders, not giving a war cry till the seventh day, walking around this incredibly fortified city. What does this have to do with victory? What does this have to do with how we should fight our battles? Here's just one, one truth that we can mine out of this, is that ultimately God declares that the victory has already been won before they start the battle. Some of you, that's the hope you needed today. God's already, already won. The victory's already present in him. The victory's already been secured. You don't have to keep striving and fighting. But I'm curious in this story, why does God then command them to march, to blow trumpets, to carry flags, to, to not shout to the seventh day if the battle's already won? Like, just thinking logically, why couldn't they just walk in? Here's the truth, and I see this all over Gideon's story, and I, I see this all over this story, is that if you ask what is essential to following God, what at the end of the day is the most important thing to look for in your spiritual journey, it's this. God is looking for obedience. God is looking for obedience. What I didn't say and what Joshua doesn't say, what Gideon last weekend doesn't say, is God is looking for your well-rounded out strategy for victory. That God is looking for you to have all your ducks in a row, to have the military lined up, to have the camel cavalry, the fortified walls, all the things that these other nations had. He's not saying you need to be like everyone else. God is saying, will you listen to me and will you do what I say? 
the key even to the US military today being incredibly successful is they have groups of people who decide to do that. I'm gonna listen to an order and I'm going to do it. And so many times when it comes to our spiritual journey, we listen, but we don't obey. We hear what God asks, we maybe sense a prompting, we have a dream, we read a scripture, and that's where it stops. And so many times we fall short of the victory and, and the, the battle God wants to win in our, in our own hearts because we cease to obey. We've stopped obeying. And when I look at the scriptures over and over again, God is just looking for obedience. One of the reasons that it seems kind of aggressive, but actually is really, really important to the story is that Jericho is, is destroyed. I mean, you read the rest of the story, they go around, and again, if you grew up in church, you're familiar with the story. They, they walk around the city, God delivers them, God, God instructs them to wipe everybody out in the city, even the animals, like it's a very, very intense result to this story. And yet, over and over again, Jericho, even as a nation, had the opportunity to follow God. They had the opportunity to, to be a part of Israel's story. They had the opportunity to align with the Lord's way, and they constantly disobeyed. They constantly rejected. I mean, the culture of Jericho was incredibly corrupt. I mean, common practice in Jer Jericho at the time were things like bestiality, temple prostitution, child sacrifice. I mean, these are things that you could just look at a culture and say, wow, they are so far from what God has actually intended the culture to be, intended the world to be as a blessing to one another. Uh, over and over again, they had delayed following God's way, and eventually he wipes them out as, as kind of a test of Israel's own obedience. Uh, so most of you are parents in the room, or you at least grew up with a parent. I think, um, as I think about obedience, the thing that comes to my mind immediately is my mom. Now, that's because I struggled with obedience as a child. I'm sure none of you do that. But, or even in the modern day, you probably don't do that, but I struggled with it. I remember one of the things my mom said after doing something particularly wrong over and over again, and now even as an adult, it rings in my head. Uh, she would say, and she's from Mississippi, so I'm gonna say it like she said it, um, and she, no, I'm just kidding. She didn't hold that. That's mean, sorry, mom, if you're watching. She would over and over again say, John, don't you know that delayed obedience is disobedience? That's what she say, and I was like, "Thanks, Sandra Bullock from the Blind Side." <laughs> like, appreciate that encouragement. Uh, for me, that stuck in my brain. Like, I, I remember that delayed obedience is disobedience. Friends, I think she was tapping into something incredibly spiritual in, in the little five-year-old version of me. Even when it comes to our spiritual journey, our walk with Jesus, delayed obedience is ultimately. It's disobedience. For some of you, that's an encouragement to know that you could step into that life now. For some of you, there's, there's conviction that's necessary to take place right now. But delayed obedience is ultimately disobedience. Jericho had so delayed over and over again that God eventually wipes them out and, and causes Israel to inherit the land in, in the promised land. And I do want to say just kind of two tangent things on this. And, and for some of you, this is going to be really clarifying. For others of you, this is going to be a reminder of something you already know, is that ultimately when you look at our world and our community as a church, the community God has placed us in, here's what I believe. God can use obedience to tear down walls of sin, brokenness, and oppression in a community. 
Don't think just person to person. But what ends up happening is Israel is a part of this miraculous story in which God tears down walls of some of this broken, perverted culture that they were living among. And it wasn't because they finally just kept preaching to Jericho. It's because they lived out their own obedience to God. They said, we heard his voice. We did what he said. The walls came crashing down. Ultimately, um, as I look at kind of our conceptual plan for the building that we're praying about and discerning, and most of you have seen it by this point. Um, I think we've got a picture of it. You'll be able to see as well if you haven't. When I look at a plan like this, ultimately in my head what goes through is part of why that a space like this is critical to the future is because there are walls that sin and oppression and brokenness in our community have built up that we are called to tear down. That we as a church have a responsibility as the hope and the light of Jesus Christ to say, we're going to obey even when it make, doesn't make any sense because there are walls that the enemy, there's ground the enemy has taken in the community that we don't want to be okay with, right? That's kind of why we exist, I think. Like, isn't that the call of God on, on churches to be a lighthouse, to be a place of hope for other people, to be a place where f- people get free, people get rescued, people get healed from addiction, marriages get put back together, and our world constantly wants to build up those walls and say, you, you can't tear those down. Those are just part of our culture. And we as a church, or maybe just me today, I'm saying I'm not okay with that. Part of the reason why I just sense God leading us towards this facility is every time I stand behind someone in line at Family Fair, there's a good chance they need that freedom. When I stand in line at Starbucks, there's a good chance there's someone sitting in there who, if the church didn't step in, if there wasn't a place for them to go, that they would never experience the hope and grace of Jesus Christ. That there are people in my life, a friend I'm running with later today, who is far from God. And I've prayed for years that he would have the encounter with God that I've had. And he has a place, maybe, where if I invited him, he would come and be like, oh, this is kind of different. This is not church that I think of when I think of the word church. Right? That's part of the reason it's so critical to move forward. As you keep reading um, in Joshua 6, if you've got your Bibles here, I want you to turn to 618. There's a verse that, as I read this story fresh this week, that I've skipped over in this story. I, I kind of end with, and the walls came tumbling down. <laughs> it's like, okay, the story's over. That was really powerful. That was great. But as you read verse 18, listen to the instruction that happens. God gives them this instruction before the walls actually crumble. He says, but keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and you'll bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. God is saying, when you, when you take this city, there's certain things I want you to set aside as holy to me. Think of that as almost like a tithe. I've given you this resource, but I want you to set aside some of it just as a way to honor me and to declare it sacred for the community. But if you skip ahead to chapter 7, verse 1. 7, verse 1, chapter 7 is one of, to me, the most sobering passages in the scriptures. Because look how it starts. But the Israelites were unfaithful. Read the word obedience into that. The the Israelites were disobedient to what God had asked them to do in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, he took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Just like our obedience can tear down walls 
And just like really when you think about it, the only thing God is actually asking of us in this moment is, is obedience. Listen to me and do what I'm asking you to do. Sin, disobedience, friends, can tear down walls that obedience has built. That's true in a church community. That's true in your marriage. That's true in your kids. That's true in just the community in which we live. That there's actually, because, because God is looking for obedience, when we live outside of that realm, when we, we stay out of alignment over and over again, some of us for years, ultimately sin tears down the walls that obedience has built. This is what happens with Achan. This is what happens with Israel. And you know this. Years of a strong marriage can be lost in an instant with one kiss. Years of sobriety can be lost with one DUI. Years of a church's incredible, faithful impact in a community can be lost in one bad interaction online. Years of following Jesus can be lost by one defining act of disobedience to God. And I think about just the opportunity as I look at uh, even some of you who are in the business world. One decade of incredible integrity in a business can be lost with one falsified expense report, with one decision that, that, that ultimately is disobedient to the way that God has intended us to live. What is essential? It's obedience. What God is looking for is people who are going to listen to him to stay in tune with him and to actually do what he says. This is why, to me, I'm so inspired every time I read the gospel story. Every time I think about what God has done in my own life, I think about Jesus. Jesus came fully God, but fully man. He was tempted in every single way you've been tempted, and more. All the, the frailty and the weakness of being a human Jesus experienced, and yet figured out a way to stay perfectly aligned with God perfectly aligned with the Father, perfectly at peace with the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, his perfect life, his obedient life, gave us the possibility to live an obedient life. Without Jesus in the center of your life, ultimately, you will not know what it means to be an obedient person. You will drift in and out of obedience and disobedience until you decide and I decide we're going to surrender our lives to Jesus and let him lead us. Let him guide us. Let him be the king over our hearts. So listen to what he says, even when it makes no sense, even when it seems countercultural and illogical, and say, all right, God, here's what I'm sensing you're asking me to do, and I'm just going to step out, and I'm going to do it. Uh, Lindsay and I have really been wrestling with this question. If, if God is looking for my obedience, then what's the next question to ask? What's the next step to take? And I think about our own story, and I just want to throw this question up that we're wrestling with. And I'm obviously inviting you into this process. It's very, very simple. And you all maybe know the answer quite quickly, actually. It's the simple question of what is my next step of obedience? What's your next step of obedience? Again, it may be related to what we're journeying through as a church. It could be personal. There may be someone in the room which you need to forgive. There could be someone online who you need to make things right with. There may be people that you have stopped praying for to come to Jesus, and you know they're not done yet. God is not done with them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep praying for them. I'm going to keep seeking to bless them. Because ultimately, friends, God uses obedience tests in our lives to stretch our faith, to make us whole, to make us new, to make us different people. 
And if we work through those tests personally, as a community, ultimately we, we become the people God always desired us to be. But if we stop at just hearing God's voice and don't decide to move forward, don't decide to obey, we miss out on that. And so even Lindsay and I, we're wrestling. We've got the pledge card on our, on our fridge. We're saying, God, just what are you asking us to do? And give us the courage to do it. Again, for some of you, you look at a plan, you look at a number like $79,000, you're like, oh my word, there's no way. Others of you, your, your stretch of faith is just like encouraging other people because to you, that's like, okay, that's it. <laughs> that's all, we can do it for sure. And I've had conversations with many of you over the last week that fall into both those camps, just total faith, total belief, and your, your stretching of faith is actually encouraging other people on that. But some of you, it's a stretch of faith is on you. And you're like, uh, I don't know if I can do that. I mean, here's what I sense God asking me. Can I actually live that out? Lindsay and I sat on the couch this week, and she had a number, and I had a number. <laughs> and they weren't the same. And her number ended up stretching my faith. Uh, and she's a numbers person, which is the irony of it all. But, um, but again, I, I look at that question, what, what is my next step of obedience? And the thing that you and I at the end of our lives would be accounted for is how we answered that question. What is my next step and will I do it? Will I live it? Again, I'm not just talking about money. This is not a manipulating money pitch for the campaign. But if that's part of what your step is, you need to do that. And I'm not gonna prescribe that step of obedience. That's something between you and God that you need to act on. And just like Israel, you and I have the potential as a community, as individuals, to be a blessing to the communities around us to make a difference, to see zero lives unchanged. But that stops, that's halted, that's paused at our disobedience. And so let's pray together. I just wanna invite you into this because this is, this is me as I look at this weird potato and salt and garlic powder. This is what I think about. If I can get this right, my walk with God will continue to grow. If you can get this right, your, your family will continue to grow. Our church will continue to grow. And that's part of my desire is to just see that, that we become that community. So, Father, we just lay down all the things in our lives that would keep us from fully obeying you. We set them aside. And we really do ask, God, that your will would be made plain to us, to be made clear as we're working through this discerning and prayerful process, even with this building, we're, we're asking that God, you'd help us to get out of the way and that your Holy Spirit would speak directly to us and give us the courage and boldness to act. Because there's a lot at stake for us personally, for our walks with you, but also our community. So help us to lay it all down. Help us to, to obey when you call and to listen to your spirit. We wanna be moved by you. We want to be led by you. And so I pray, God, that you'd fill us now with that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and gave him the courage to live out a fully obedient life. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Church, would you stand with me as we respond and uh, worship Jesus together?